Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Happy Holidays from Trupanion, a proud sponsor of Pure Dog Talk. You treat your pets like family, so why not insure them like it? Protect against the unexpected with Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. What sets Trupanion apart from the pack is their ability to pay your veterinarian directly, leaving you to pay less out of pocket when unexpected vet bills arise. If you're a breeder, Trupanion also offers a program allowing you to send your litters home with a special offer to try medical insurance for pets. Last year, Trupanion paid out over $4.5 million in claims as part of the program. From seasonal allergies to chocolate ingestion, they've covered it. Learn more about the Breeder Support Program through the partner link on my page and let them know that Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am so excited, you guys. I have with us Dr. Gerald Bell. He is the adjunct professor of veterinary genetics at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. Some of you will remember the podcast that we did with Dr. Bell years ago. It's still one of the most popular, most downloaded episodes. So I am very excited to have him back today. And we're going to talk about something that is more and more in conversation in our world in the purebred dog community. And that is the popular sire syndrome. And so welcome, Dr. Bell. I'm very, very happy to have you here. Nice to be here. Excellent. And so when we talk about popular sire syndrome, sometimes I wonder if people really kind of have a hang of what that actually means. So can we give it a definition, put some brackets around that? Okay, so how I define the popular SAR syndrome would be the overuse of a single dog beyond their usefulness to contribute to the gene pool. So it is an overuse that is the issue. And what happens with a popular sire is that their use occurs during a relatively short period of time, usually a one to two year period of time when they're in a very active breeding stage. And so what it does for us is that it does not provide the feedback in terms of their offspring and how their offspring develop before the overuse has already taken place. Mm -hmm. So, and when I compare a popular sire to an influential ancestor in the background of a breed who has a very high contribution to every member of the breed from the past. And people compare the two and say, well, why is it okay for an influential ancestor to be so influential, but not a popular sire? And it is the ability to evaluate over time. Okay. So that with an influential ancestor, they remain influential because their descendants for each generation are evaluated against other individuals and they are 
decided to be used for breeding. And that's how that ancestor continues their influence through multiple generations of descendants. Whereas a popular sire, his only way to evaluate him is based on his phenotype, what he looks like, and not based on his genotype or what he will produce over time. And so that evaluation is not available and possible with a popular sire syndrome. Okay. I think that is really, really a good clarification because there are so many dogs that are influential. And when is it deleterious, I think, is the important question that you answered there. And so I guess the next question is, how does it happen? Popular sire syndrome, it seems like it creeps up on you. And one dog and then his progeny, and they become almost exclusive in a small gene pool. You can see that. Well, we actually see it in large gene pools as well. So we've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of popular sire syndrome in many breeds where a popular sire gets replaced by his son Mm -hmm. who becomes a popular sire, who -hmm. gets replaced by his son who becomes a popular sire, and the entire breed truncates on that single sire line. Yes, And the insidious issue with popular sire syndrome is that there are only so many quality bitches that are going to be bred with each generation. And if a large portion of those quality females are all bred to a single male or a single male line, it sidelines the other quality males across the breadth of the gene pool that should be contributing to their gene pools and the next generation. And so the issue with popular sire, there are several issues, but one of the major issues is the loss of genetic diversity in the gene pool. And that is a big rallying cry right now about genetic diversity. So we will talk a little bit more about that as well. But really, the popular sire syndrome is one of the strongest factors in limiting genetic diversity of breed populations in that regard. And is there a point, like a statistic, so at 10% or at 20%, right? What is that tipping point? Is there a way to know that? Well, it's difficult because in Europe, where they do a lot more restrictions on breeding, where you have breed wardens Mm -hmm. who monitor matings and, and approve matings, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but they have a lot more control than we do here in America. Right. And they will put a limit on in some countries, five breedings in the lifetime of a dog. I don't think that's very fair because Mm -hmm. it doesn't really equate to their influence on the breed. You know, if you have a mating that doesn't produce anything of quality and it's not used, then should that count as the one of the five? So it really depends on how many offspring are being used for breeding out of that popular sire. It really doesn't matter how many individuals the sire produces. It's what is going to contribute to the gene pool in the next generation. Uh, Some countries will put a restriction that 5% of matings, no more than 5% of the matings in any single year should be to a single sire. And Mm -hmm. so that really has to do with the size of the gene pool and how many matings are going on. And, And certainly I think that that's a realistic thing as well, but it still puts restrictions that don't necessarily correlate to the health and quality of the breed and what's being produced. And I think that is a very important aspect of it as well. But those are benchmarks that are used in different countries to say at what point does Mm -hmm. popular SAR kick in and need Mm -hmm. to be evaluated. Okay. 
Well, that's good. And I am far from advocating for applying restrictions legally, but more in our minds, like how we think about this. Can we go a little further? You mentioned basically population genetics and that bred into a corner concept that you started earlier. I'd like to kind of go down that rabbit hole a little further. (laughs) Okay. Let me just say, so we talked about the genetic diversity issue. The Mm -hmm. second issue is recessive deleterious genes that the popular sire may carry. And everybody has some deleterious genes in their background. And so with the popular sire, you don't know what those deleterious genes are going to cause until a few more generations down the line when his offspring are adults and maybe they're reproducing as well. And at that point, you can see what is being produced. And so once again, if you run into issues where a popular sire is obviously producing an issue and we need to go through a purging process to try to get rid of those deleterious genes and disorders, then you're not just purging that popular sire, but you're also purging the quality females that he was bred to, because now in all of those matings, their Mm -hmm. influence is going to be selected against because they were bred to that popular sire. And so you can lose an entire generation of females as well as just the popular sire by trying to select against what a sire has been passing on. Yes, (laughs) that is the losing the bitch lines as well, I think is so. Exactly. So we're talking about the diversity of the breed gene pool as well as the quality. And Mm -hmm. the whole idea of breeding to a popular sire is because people want to breed to the best quality male, and that's what they see in a popular sire. And so this is why we have to think about all of these aspects. Right. And so talk to us a little bit. And I see it in my breed. I see it in every breed, people or breeders or what have you, individuals or groups of individuals even get themselves, if you will, bred into a corner. Like I've used this dog and this dog and this dog and this dog, like you were talking about the son of the son of the son of the son. And so how do we kind of think about that as breeders and think about ways that we can avoid that trap in the maze of dog breeding? I think it really speaks to what are we breeding for and that that's what needs to be the primary decision maker. I don't think saying that I want as much of this individual as possible is really saying I want what's best for quality and health in my breeding program. So you really need to look at what you have and what you're getting. And I think the bottom line is if you have a popular sire or if you have any sire, that you desire certain characteristics from that individual. Once you get them, I think you want to move in a different direction and solidify what you have and then improve on other things that you don't have instead of concentrating on exactly the same thing with every generation. And that's what's important. Now, there are some people that will say, I want to create a dog that has as much of this ancestor as possible. And hopefully that ancestor is far enough back that we actually know what that ancestor has produced and what its offspring have produced that are going to be in the pedigree of that mating. And then you can make that evaluation because you are looking at what has been produced. You're looking at what is there. You're looking at at health screening tests and so forth through the generations. And you are actually selecting for the quality and the health and not really just selecting for a name in the pedigree. Right. And I think you touched on one right there. We breed to dogs, not to ribbons. And I think that that is 
such an important point and such an important thing for people to hear. You did mention the phrase bred into a corner. So Mm. this is where it's important that a breed has lots of different people doing lots of different things so that you have choices in your mating decisions that actually are different from each other so that you do have differences. And the bottom line with any breed being a healthy breed is we like to see a lot of breeding going on. And one thing that we look at is the breed population and registrations, because we love to see a large stable population or an expanding population. We don't want to see decreasing populations in registrations, because that means that we have a significant chance of losing portions of the gene pool that should be contributing to the diversity. And so when you are bred into a corner, when you say you're bred into a corner, I've got no place to go. There should be plenty of places that you can go within your breed to bring in things you don't have, to solidify things that you do have, and to make breeding choices between individuals that are different from each other. Because if everyone is the same, then it's almost like the popular sire became the entire breed or that the entire breed became one thing. And if you have nowhere else to breed to, then your breed is in trouble. Yes, I'm leaving a pregnant pause with that because I think that that's the concern and that's what we see happen too often. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. So, hey, crew. As 2020, otherwise known as the year from hell, draws to a close, I have some actual good news to share with y'all. First of all, If you haven't twigged to the Good Dog pod, you should most definitely add it to your downloads. This is a new podcast I'm hosting for Good Dog with the goal of reaching an even wider audience than we do here at Pure Dog Talk. With great content supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. You can find the Good Dog pod wherever you get this podcast including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Our primary topics on the Good Dog Pod are training and veterinary and breeding and legal advocacy. And I am so excited because we're going to try out a new format. We're sort of taste testing it. Basically, a call-in show concept with an Ask Our Advisors Q&A session with myself and Dr. Gail Watkins and Susan Patterson from the Facebook Repro Group. Our first crack at this, we're talking about that very first week of neonatal care and fielding questions from the audience, i.e. you guys. So very cool. Second of all, stay tuned for more good news in the new year. This is in advertising speak, what we call the big tease. <laughs> but seriously, though, enjoy this month's outstanding Pure Dog Talk and Good Dog Pod episodes. Go like the Pure Dog Talk Facebook page so that you can get up-to-the-minute details. And consider joining our patrons community by supporting great content at Pure Dog Talk. Most of all, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Happy holidays to one and all. Can you offer 
I mean, you are a breeder as well as a veterinary geneticist, so you have lots of information and thoughts on this, which is why I value your opinion so much. Is there any science-based suggestion, anything that you can use to talk about based on science, talking about how to take that breed that's in trouble and revitalize it? You know, if you've got a big chunk or all or some significant percentage of your breed that is in that corner, what are steps that you can take to move forward? Okay. So first I would like to say, and I have to say this because of the commercial companies and some of the veterinary genetic testing centers have figured out that they can compute a statistic based on molecular genetic studies of the chromosomes to compute what's called homozygosity. Okay. And homozygosity is a hallmark of purebred breeding. It's what you want to create to create a pure breed mm-hmm. that reproduces itself uniformly and has certain qualities. Whereas in all other instances of applied genetics, homozygosity is looked at as a negative thing. That homozygosity can increase disease expression if you have deleterious genes in the background. And even biblical, you know, we are told, mm. you know, we shouldn't be mating with our close relatives. That, mm-hmm. that it, it, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of negativity about that. The molecular genetic researchers, many of the recommendations that they are using were developed based on endangered species, species that have very few breedable individuals left on the planet. And how do we rescue this species? Mm-hmm. And in order to rescue the species, you need to grow the population. And they want to prevent diseases and deleterious issues. So they look to get the most heterozygosity as possible and limit homozygosity. And that's the basis of species survival plans. And unfortunately, we have in the commercial companies mm-hmm. and we have at the Veteran Genetics Laboratory at UC Davis with Dr. Peterson's work, where they are doing genetic diversity profiles Mm -hmm. and telling breeds and breeders that you must breed to the most unrelated individual and that that's how you should do your selection. That's the most important thing to do with selection. And unfortunately, that's following that species survival plan type of breeding mechanism. And the fact of the matter is very few breeds whether they're large population breeds or whether they're small population breeds, very few are in the situation where you're seeing depression and you're seeing limited genetic diversity causing loss of health or loss of quality. And so applying these tools where they are not needed is actually destructive to the breed's gene pool and the gene pool structure of the breed, where we have had selection for many, many generations for specific traits, for specific health, and trying to create homozygosity for those things. And now we're being told we must destroy that homozygosity by outbreeding as our only tool of selection. And that's where we have an issue. There are a handful of breeds that have limited genetic diversity or have significant breed-wide genetic disease where they really have no place to go and need to bring in new genes. So an example is the Norwegian Lundehund, who has a problem with an intestinal disorder that does not allow them to absorb 
their nutrients and they lose weight and they lose protein. And the majority of the breed is affected with that. So the breed has now been opened up to other Scandinavian and Norwegian hound breeds to try to bring in new genes that hopefully will replace those disease-causing genes, which have not even been identified. There's not a a test for that disease. So that's an instance where a species survival plan, where outbreeding, where creating heterozygosity is an important thing. Whereas in most purebred breeds, saying you must breed for heterozygosity to improve genetic diversity and improve genetic health is actually destroying breed structure and destroying what is important for that breed. And so I feel very strongly about it because all I have done as a population geneticist is study dog breeds for the past 40 years now. And this is what I see as a total wipeout of the background of breeds in trying to get this to happen. If some people want to outbreed all the time, that's fine. My mantra has always been everyone should be doing something a little different. So Mm. if some people are doing something different by outbreeding, that's okay. But if everybody does it, it's as bad as me saying everyone must be line breeding, because if everyone does the same thing, that's what causes us to work ourselves into corners. If everyone's doing something a little different with each mating or is selecting for something different or looking for a different type when they look in the ring, then that's what creates diversity in the breed. And one last point on that subject is that genetic diversity does not have to do with the diversity within each individual dog, which is what is being measured by these genetic diversity indices. Genetic diversity has to do with who that dog is being bred to. Because you can take, for instance, four dogs as representing an entire population. And if two of those dogs are related to each other, and two of those dogs are related to each other, but not related to the opposite of those two, if you breed together just outbreed two dogs that are not related to each other and for two pairs, Mm. then you have an outbred population. And if you just line breed on the two dogs that were related and line breed on the other two dogs that were related, then they're going to say, well, that's an inbred or highly line bred population. But the bottom line is in terms of genetic diversity, the same four dogs were bred, the same genes are present in the breed, and the breed's gene pool did not change. So if a breed's gene pool doesn't change, how does that affect diversity? So we need to understand that genetic diversity talk means the breadth of variation within the gene pool and not the specific matings that are going on. It's the utilization of individuals across the breadth of the gene pool that maintains the breadth of those genes in producing the next generation. I think that is such an important, I mean, everybody gets hung up on COI and right now it's who can have the lowest COI, like we're doing a conga line or something. I think the next question I have then is something I've heard suggested and I wanted to bounce it off of you. The idea being that you breed more individual dogs within a family fewer times. And that that is to help, you know, expand the gene pool. Thoughts on that concept? You know, there is no formula Mm. that creates the best breed background. The formula needs to be, what do I not have that I need to breed to bring in, which is usually going to 
cause outbreeding because mm-hmm. you're going to something that isn't in your background. Mm-hmm. And what do I have that I want to fix, which is going to be probably some line breeding to try to create homozygosity so that you're uniformly producing certain traits as well as selecting against certain diseases. So to say that there's a formula of what you do with line breeding, I certainly think if you've line bred a couple of times, you want to go out and bring some new stuff in. I think that's a reasonable thing to say. But on the other hand, there are some people that continually line breed and they have large litters and they have health and they have quality. And I can't say that they're doing something wrong. So it really depends on what's being produced on monitoring for health and quality. And on a breed-wide level, that means regular breed health surveys. And as a director at the OFA, and the OFA Mm -hmm. is a not-for-profit animal health foundation dedicated to the genetic improvement of companion animals. And the directors, myself and a dozen of other people, are all volunteers. There's no payment that any of us receive for being on the OFA. But one of the things at the OFA is that we offer live online breed health surveys to every single breed. And so a breed club just needs to contact the OFA, contact Eddie Zuck and say, we would Mm -hmm. like to do a breed health survey. We have a template that we've worked on over the years that incorporates what most breeds want in a health survey. And then we always ask what else is important to the breed? What specific diseases do you want a lot of detail on? What other issues are you concerned with, whether it's vaccination, whether it's flea products, whether it's anything else, or what you do with your dog if the breed is interested in what percentage you're doing agility or confirmation or just pets or whatever. But it tells you what the breed is doing over time, and it's at no charge to the breed clubs. So I do feel that that's an important thing, because if a breed club is not doing breed health surveys on a regular basis, and with the OFA survey, you can even break it down. Like if you have a long-standing health survey, we can break it down to five-year periods and say, okay, over the course of all of these five-year periods, have certain problems increase in frequency, have certain problems decrease in frequency, and it allows us to really see the health of the breed. So monitoring is important, and then selection, so that you're actually doing selection for things that you want against the things that you don't want, and utilizing that in your matings. So in terms of a system of breeding that would tend to work the best, none will work the best in every situation. The situation that works the best is to know what you have, know what you want, know what you don't want. Look at some males or females if you're looking at purchasing a female. For breeders, look at what individuals have in their phenotype. Look what they have produced in the past if they have been bred, even though the offspring may not be of age to evaluate hips and many other things. But look at all the data and the information you have and decide on a couple of studs that you might be looking to breed to or a bitch line that you're looking to purchase to start with a new brood bitch and decide which individual ticks off the most boxes in all of those categories. So each breeding requires a real consideration of what you want, what you don't want, what you have, and work yourself from there. Excellent. All right, Cruz, thank you all for joining us. This has been part one of our episode. Watch this space. Part two will be coming up soon. 
As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.